This lesson is on partisans and saboteurs, a little bit on the readings. We had the Ramsey reading called Lieutenant Ramsey's War. For our CIC listeners, you may be asking why we're reading this again. Well, I've added a dozen pages, and those dozen pages, I think, go to a great length to highlight um, partisan warfare from the perspective of a Western officer, a Army, U.S. Army soldier. It highlights, I think, partisan warfare even more effectively than all the Kilcullens and Galulas in the world. That's just my personal opinion. Other guerrilla journals are also great, whether Mao or Che, Lenin, Gubins, Paul Kicks, T.E. Lawrence, or books about U.S. guerrillas in the Philippines to include what I think are some pretty interesting books such as American Guerrilla and MacArthur Spies. Um, I think amongst these, though, Lieutenant Ramsey's war really stands out. In the last decade, there has finally been a windfall in research on the successful guerrilla warfare campaigns in the Philippines between 1942 and 1945. And I'm not speaking about the Maoist or communist guerrillas, but instead those that opposed uh, Japanese rule that were not associated with the Hux. Ramsey did not initially receive strategic vision or guidance from General MacArthur, who had fled to Australia for most of the war. Tactically, strategically, and organizationally, in the case of Ramsey, they were more flat and even more extreme than Mao. They out-Maoed Mao. Uh, as on a uh, U.S. officer um, in the resistance opined in your readings, well, Mao could be a Japanese person for all I care, so long as we use what he says. The American guerrilla, uh, the American and Filipina guerrillas took Mao's recommended structures and approaches and took it further, allowing partisans and guerrilla units to be far more autonomous. And I quote again from that book, no longer would we follow the Maoist model of cadres. Instead, the resistance would be reorganized, did away with the inequities and vagaries of the cadre system, allowed for decentralized control, and made for a more efficient response to the increasingly grave military and counterintelligence situation we faced. Along with the regionalized guerrilla units, the units became more and more indigenous uh, until MacArthur's return. What Commodore Mao is saying is that we have to turn our weaknesses into strengths. We have to stay on the defensive but assume the initiative. Take advantage of the terrain and the fact that the Japanese are fighting in a foreign country among a hostile population. We have to stay flexible but organized and avoid pitched battles. Most of all, we have to build our credibility and get the people on our side. We fight only when we have the advantage, but we don't take on the enemy directly. And again, this is a quote from the Ramsey reading. And then to this, the reply went, and I quote, We attack only when we know we can win. Otherwise, we stay low and concentrate on organizing, gathering intelligence, and sabotage. From William Stevenson, um, the book is called A Man Called Intrepid. This book sometimes gets accused of being uh, propaganda. I don't know about that because this book was thoroughly researched, even if it does pay respect to the heroic actions of subversives against the Nazis in World War II. Uh, I especially like this book because it plays up the sudden surge of having to relearn ancient forms 
of warfare, something this course attempts to address. And I quote from Paul Kicks from last week uh, on page 66 of his book, uh, The Saboteur. So he says, and I quote, asymmetric fighting was in fact so well established that the first counterinsurgency manual emerged in 600 AD. Of course, we now know uh, this actually occurred in 1400 BCE. So while the most famous guerrilla tract was T.E. Lawrence's The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and I'm going to interject here and say that's certainly for the English language in Western Europe, but not worldwide. And I go on to quote, the book based on his experiences in World War I helped disparate bands of Bedouin tribesmen push the mighty Turks out of Arabia. But by the outset of World War II, even though Lawrence's colleagues had survived, the agencies that had supported them had not. So in May of 1940, with the situation in France worsening, the British chiefs recommended to the war cabinet a new, and I quote, special organization that could create, and I quote, widespread revolt in Germany's conquered territories. Once again, and this is me speaking, we had to relearn our old ways of fighting subversive warfare. Some historians have argued that partisan warfare is as old as mankind, also known as subversive warfare. What is popularly popularly considered conventional warfare of army pitted against army is a relatively new concept. But even after armies of the first societies, the first civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia stood up, militaries throughout history, governments throughout history, have had to contend with irregular warriors, with spies, with saboteurs, and with partisans. Avoid direct flights, fights, dissipate before armies, avoid adversary strength, and instead target vulnerabilities. Transform from seemingly hidden ghosts to governing bodies over bits of land and back again without notice. Patiently prick an enemy for years or decades until she loses will or collapses. Turn an enemy's strength, such as large numbers, strong forts, complex integrated logistics, bias for action, initiative, and targeted aggression into weaknesses through stretching the adversary security apparatus thin by baiting them into hasty traps and baiting that government to radicalize populations further through forcing them to overreact. This is not fourth-generation warfare. This is not fifth-generation warfare. This is the oldest style of warfare. Some may argue this is the normal way of warfare. Some advice from Colonel T.E. Lawrence in 1926, and please take this as a lesson that can be applied also to political warfare and partisan warfare genres. And I quote, do not try to do too much with your own hands. So he's talking in this case about the protagonist government, for example. Better the partisans, here he's actually talking about Arabs, but better the partisans do it tolerably than you do it perfectly. Do not try to trade on what you know of fighting. Your ideal position is when you are present and not noticed. Important is detachment, being a silent threat, and never engaging the enemy, and allowing partisans to be the engine of their own success. There's also some possible lessons from 20th century so-called communist guerrillas. Social, political, cultural, and geographic conditions in each area that partisan warfare exists must determine the strategy, tactics, the composition, disposition, and any 
type of command structure to employ subversive and partisan warfare. Partisan warfare is a human endeavor. As Mao said, there is no mechanical uh, panacea. Its basic element, and I'm going on to uh, quote Mao, its basic element is manned, and man is more complex than any number of machines. Now, I want to talk a little bit about agents of subversion. This is one of the tradecraft manuals that you have on Blackboard. Uh, I wanted to go over a few of the terms and dig a little deeper. First, we have fellow travelers, individuals abroad who happen to already be working towards your government's goals. May, you may wish to avoid overt relationship, especially if the fellow traveler's influence derives from her independence, and instead subtly, silently, invisibly, and distantly enable, allow, support, amplify, leverage. They have their own goals. They have their own strategy. They have their own value system that just happens to be sort of in consonance uh, with that of your government. Um, now, I do want to say that there is a lot in pop literature, uh, art does argue a lot about the origins of the terms, not just useful idiots and fellow travelers, but also of so-called fifth columnists. Basically, fifth columnist is an organization of fellow travelers. Uh, none of these descriptions are necessarily accurate, uh, and all the terms do predate Lenin and Trotsky and Hemingway, uh, the OSS, and other sources. Fifth columns, civil society government networks in an adversarial state that will work against that state and or for an outside power. Some scholars consider fellow travelers as fifth columnists, so sometimes you'll hear uh, the words being used interchangeably. But a fifth column, unlike a group of fellow travelers that operates completely separately, assumes that there is some attempt at networking uh, some attempt at organization, even if that network is a leaderless-seeming movement with the weakest of positive feedback loops, even if that movement is a complex adaptive system on the edge of chaos. Next, we have third options. This is unaffiliated third parties, contractors, or mercenaries that are not paid or hired directly by a government and not formally affiliated with a government of a state that will act directly on the state's behalf, especially abroad. Some do this out of patriotism. Some do it out of ideology. Others may be paid through many disparate, unaffiliated intermediaries, especially when said payments are, at least on the, service, on the surface, for unrelated work. Now, this can mean many things. An example is that I have been a third option. When civil affairs and MISO teams uh, we're heading to different areas in the Middle East, Southwest Asia, North Africa, and stopping through our embassy in Abu Dhabi. Oftentimes, I volunteered on weekends to advise and to support when I was needed. There was no payment. There was nothing official. Meetings were under the auspices of coffees, uh, tea, and beers with friends, and nothing more. Then we have agents provocateurs. This is when agents infiltrate into or pretend to be part of a targeted network or movement to discredit that targeted network or movement. These agents conduct or spur, inspire actions that would lead to public outrage and an excuse to spark police military action. Effective agents will inspire the targeted network to conduct malign actions, 
but not be at the site of any recordable events and would remain unknown to all but the original antagonist. Examples include the supposed communist burning of the Reichstag, after which the Third Reich took massive emergency powers, and one saved round for types of saboteurs, in this case partisans, is something known, or people that are known as viral agents. Those that can artificially amplify narratives and narrative threads, online and off, include savvy at creating realistic, living, breathing avatars in social media and other mediums to spread ideas through existing networks. Those that can re-engineer algorithms, sometimes multiple times a day, to search engine optimized stories. Those that are able and willing to trigger narrative virality to flood an information environment via base impulses. And those that can and will artificially amplify a writer's book to a bestseller list or a YouTube filmmaker to fame. And there are people that can do this. It costs a lot of money. If you want to be on the New York Times bestseller list or Amazon bestseller list, if you pay enough money to certain organizations, such agents and their staff are expensive, especially as you should funnel funds through a third option who will then ensure anonymity through deception, stealth, and multiple intermediaries. You can affect most any narrative thread or even ebook to go viral in less than a day if you already have set up the indirect funding schemes, obviously with deception. Thank you.